1: all right my name is Rich Schmidt I'm here with Alex Nichols we're at Willakckensey estate in Yamhill it's uh, March 9th 2022 Alex thanks so much for joining us today yeah absolutely uh, first question to get us started the biggest question of all is why wine yeah it's a good question um,
2: I so I didn't come from a wine family or anything like that my parents are actually both medical and growing up you know I'd, I saw a couple of examples of wine being like a career option, but they, it wasn't really something that was, um, you know, laid out in front of me. Um, actually, grew up with John Paul's son, and saw his dad as a winemaker, and thought it was just sort of this unique, interesting uh, career path, but never really thought much of it. And um, my, you know, my dad was a colleague of, um, of John Bergstrom's as well, and so I had sort of had this peripheral. Um, sort of awareness of wine as a career, but again, never really thought much of it. Um, it wasn't until I was getting ready to go to college and I was, you know, thinking about going to UC Davis, that's where my dad went, and I, um, I was planning on playing soccer and uh, saw that they had a wine program. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's an interesting thing to look at. And fast forward, I ended up going to Oregon State University, it's a little closer to home, and. Um, I noticed that they had a wine program as well. so it was it was really just getting started at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the sort of early folks through that program. and um, yeah, thought it was interesting, dove into it and uh, pretty much immediately fell in love with it. Um, I, I ended up not playing soccer. I walked well played soccer at Oregon State for a, a hot minute, but. <laughs> but not a particularly long time. I realized that it wasn't gonna happen and uh, and that was okay. So, enjoyed my time instead. And yeah, um, that was really how I kind of found my way into it. And then when I was in school, I worked my first harvest in 2008 at a, a small winery in Corvallis called Belle Valley Cellars. And uh, yeah, thought it was amazing and fascinating and like absolutely fell in love with, with the idea. and just kind of kept kept rolling from there. Um, I think it was a it was a funny sort of moment in time um, for like my generation coming out of school in 2008-2009 and there being literally no jobs available and I remember getting my first so my first uh, harvest at Belle Valet, you know I went through the interview uh, spent, you know, an hour walking around the cellar chatting with them. And I was like, okay, this sounds super cool. I'm excited about it. And then my last question was like, so am I going to get paid to do this? And they were like, oh yeah, of course. And I was like, yes, awesome. Okay. This is great. So yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's, that's where, that's where things were in 2009, 2008, 2009. And, uh, I think we were all just happy to, happy to have jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So then from there, I, I, uh, kind of kept rolling through the industry. I ended up at Adelsheim Vineyard for um, a little over four years and did a little bit of everything while I was there. Uh, started by working harvest and then worked in the tasting rooms and just kind of kept doing that for you know three different vintages and a little bit of vineyard work. Um, a little bit of club work, a little just kind of everything. Mm-hmm. I ended up sort of being the utility player for, for all things Adelsheim. and that was my sort of broader exposure to you know what the industry has to offer. And that was that was the thing that really sealed the deal. Where I was like, okay, this is this is super cool. I like this industry. It's it's different. It's diverse. It's it's unique, and um, something I can see myself doing for for quite a while. So mm-hmm, yeah.
1: So I want to back up to a second for to when you were in school and so you went to Oregon State without wine being the reason that drove you to Oregon State in the first place. Yeah. What made you decide to take the leap and actually start taking classes in wine?
2: My wife always jokes that when we started in school, I, you know, we met and I told her that I was pre-med at that point in time and she was like, ooh, exciting. (laughs) And then, after my first term, i I switched you know I switched to uh, majors at that point in time to to enology. Um, food had always been something I was super interested in, and I loved cooking um, I loved you know all things food and it's a great way to you know see the world through through food, I mean travel, uh, eating, all of the above and um, with the wine program being part of the food science program, it, it seemed like a nice um nice sort of connection and a little better alignment than what I honestly wanted to do as opposed to, to medicine at that point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was kind of how I, how I got into it and then the reality is like the beginning of the coursework is all general science anyway. So I'm pretty scientifically minded by, by nature and um, yeah, it didn't really matter. In that moment, exactly, if I was going to stay in the food science program, it was all going to kind of work. But as I continued forward and met a few more people that were in that program, there were, I think there were like nine of us at that point in time. And yeah, you used to kind of see the cohort of, of folks and you're like, okay, these are, these are kind of my people. I can kind of, I can see
1: myself fitting in with them. You mentioned it being kind of early on in Oregon State's wine program. Yeah. Tell, tell me about it. What, what, what was it like and what, what was the, what were the kind of the attractions for you as you went through the program?
2: Yeah, so uh, James Osborne ended up being my mentor, but he wasn't my original one. Um, he came on about halfway through my time there, and uh, Patty Skinkis came on. Gosh, she, I don't even know how old she was. She, I think it was her very first job out of out of her PhD program, so she was super young. And you know, James was was young at that point in time too. And they ended up being these, you know, people you could look at as as mentors in school, and and they're trying to cut their teeth in in the industry and make a, you know, make an impact on the the wine world in mm-hmm, Oregon, mm-hmm. and kind of get to feel like you get to almost grow up with them a little bit in the in the industry, and yeah, um, I'm still, you know, I'm still in good touch with them. I attend the OSU Tech meetings pretty commonly and uh, see James there along with plenty of other industry folks. So yeah.
1: Tell me about your first harvest. You mentioned it being, you're liking it right away. And it's it's an interesting theme in our interviews is people either, well, people we talk to mostly loved harvest, but it's, it's kind of that, it's kind of that, that gateway for people. Either you love it or you hate it. So tell me about the first harvest and what was it about it that appealed to you?
2: Yeah. The, like the way that I describe harvest now, when I'm interviewing interns uh, or or people to come join our team for the year because like I talk about the the analogy of sports a lot and how it's like being on a sports team you know there's this seasonality to it you kind of ramp up for the year Um, you know you, you end up being on this team for you know three four months and you're all focused solely on one single Goal and one single thing, which is to make wines and make the best wines possible. You don't really know what's going to come, and it's exciting. I mean, it's interesting, and, and honestly, that's what's I think really cool about making wine in Oregon too. Is we have we have this really variable seasonality year by year. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily see that everywhere else in the world. Um, so I think that's like that's also part of the reason that it's kept me in Oregon uh, and continue to make wine in Oregon is. I mean, I'm from Portland originally, mm-hmm. so it's close to home. I know the area. I grew up in it, and there's this sort of continuity of place and and being home. Um, but there's so much uh, variability year by year, mm-hmm. and yeah, and and the storytelling that goes along with that ends up being really, really fun and interesting. And you know, I think a lot of us, uh, when you end up in the industry for long enough, you you know, you measure your, your life in, in vintages, and there are all the other things that go along with it. There's, you know, the birth of your children and, you know, big major life events, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But there's always that, like, vintage association that goes along with it. Um, you're like, okay, so, you know, my first, my son was born in 2014, and I know exactly what the vintage was like, And uh, but, you know, obviously those two things kind of parallel each other in in some capacity. There's this there's this kind of life integration that happens with the wine world, um, and yeah, it's 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 utterly fascinating, and it's one of those things that you expect that variability for the rest of your career, the rest of your life, and that's that's what keeps us coming back each year.
1: What about the work itself? Because obviously, the work itself is not exactly glamorous, especially first yeah. first year harvest interns. So. What was the experience like for you come kind of from a physical standpoint and, and what, what kept you engaged?
2: Yeah. So, my, like my very first harvest, I was working in the lab primarily and I was doing, you know, kind of 50-50 lab and cellar. Um, and yeah, you know, like I was, I played sports, so I was re- reasonably fit at that point in time and so the, the ability to, you know, push yourself and, and work hard was pretty innate and easy for me. Um, and being able to, I think, adapt that to a work world was, mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then having something tangible that comes out of it, I think that's one of the things for, for a lot of, you know, non-wine friends, the, the tangibility of what we do is, is something that I think they, they all think is really cool and think is interesting about wine that you don't necessarily see in a lot of other professions. Um, Yeah, so that was the connectivity, the, you know, the physical work is like you you mentioned, you either love it or you hate it. And if you love it, then it's all like you're all about it. And if you hate it, then it's not for you. And you're not going to work very many harvests after that. So
1: (laughs) So you mentioned Adelsime is kind of the first 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 big step for you and and the first so tell me about how you ended up there in the the first place and and about the experience you had there being kind of like you said, a utility a utility player. Yeah,
2: so I um, you know, again, there were just, there were so many, a so few jobs at that point in time. Uh, and I was looking around and really wanted to do another harvest and kind of looked at, started looking at wineries around the valley and looking at the, you know, the important figures, the prominent figures and who, you know, who I really wanted to work for. Um, and I was looking at, you know, Adelsheim, Ponzi, uh, Elk Cove, like all of the, the founding wineries that were, that were a little bit bigger as well. And um, yeah, I ended up meeting, uh, actually I met Eric Kramer uh, at Adelsheim, he was the assistant at the time, and interviewed with him, and it seemed like a good fit, and uh, it was a little bit bigger winery, so I figured I could kind of learn the wide spectrum, and then, again, with the history there, it, it, was, it was a great place to be, or it felt like a great place mm-hmm. to sort of get started, and yeah, after I worked my first harvest, I um, was kind of looking for other jobs, so I, I landed in the tasting room for a little bit. And then, uh, yeah, just kind of kept, kept doing it. And after, um, after a year, I ended up going down to New Zealand just to sort of fill the time, if you will, and uh, worked another harvest down there, expand the experience. And that was, uh, like in hindsight, I had, I had no idea what I was doing my first year. And I was like, you know, my first year of LA and I was like, this is just so amazing and so cool and interesting. And my second year, I was like, okay, I got this. And then in hindsight, I was like, I don't have any idea what I'm doing, uh, but that's okay. And when I went to New Zealand, that's where it kind of started to click. I was like, okay, I can, I can sort of, I know what I'm doing. I know how to, you know, use equipment. I can kind of think beyond mm-hmm. the, you know, tiny little thing that's right in front of me. And it's all starting to like make a little bit more sense. And so then I went back to Adelsheim for a second harvest, and I was like, okay, I got this. I understand what's going on, and it's all, you know, it's all clicking, Mm -hmm. and I can think beyond just, yeah, what's right in front of me. And then I ended up doing a third harvest uh, at Adelsheim. That was in 2011, and um, yeah, I I really felt like I had to kind of uh like an operational i mean it's all relative right like a like a mastery of what was going on there uh in terms of just being an intern mm-hmm. um, i felt mm-hmm. like i could definitely do that and um yeah that was that was uh kind of the point where i started looking at okay what's next mm-hmm. and uh, headed to shahalen to winery after that and uh, that came about because i was friends with win and i said hey i'm kind of looking to. to do something different, and she said, "Yeah, no, like, no interview, nothing like that." I just like we were hanging out at a friend's house, and I mentioned it. And she was like, "Great, I'll I'll see you at Harvest." And I was <laughs> like, "Okay, cool, sounds good." Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the parallel thing with with all of this was, so I I ran my own brand from 2010 through 2016, and at the time that I got the idea to do that, I was you know I was 22 and. I had all the naivety and arrogance of a 22-year-old and I was like, "Oh, I can totally do this. But I, honestly, I think a lot of it was inspired by, um, you know, working for, for somebody like David Adelsheim, seeing him and seeing what he's doing in the industry and looking at where that came from. And he had no idea what the heck he was doing at that point in time. He was up here with a few other people and they were just trying to kind of figure it out. And, you know, the, the youthful spirit inside of me said, I can do that, so why not? Um, and so the way, I guess, yeah, story time on that front. The, uh, so I ended up starting that project in 2010, which was a fun vintage to start, followed by 2011, also <laughs> another fun vintage to start. And um, I had been, when I was in school, I was working for Paul Schreiner uh, through the USDA and was working at Woodhall Vineyard down there. Um, and so when I started my project I you know I bought fruit from the vineyard that I was working in So I bought you know a ton of fruit from from down there, and then I bought a ton of fruit from um, Another friend or a family friend uh, John Carter, so he was was leasing a vineyard called Lily's Vineyard in the Dundee Hills So I thought it was cool, and I was like oh sweet Dundee Hills fruit, and then I quickly realized like oh wow Okay, this is a this is a pretty pretty prominent vineyard in a pretty prominent location so I was pretty happy to have access to that. Um, so I started that and I, was, I made 120 cases my first year and was really just happy to like have done it and you know gone through the whole cycle, put things in bottle and then 2011 comes around and I'm like okay let's do it again. So I was able to work with fruit from Woodhall and Lilies again uh, for a second year did that and then I was like I got to sell this one now. Okay. Um, and that was, you know, that was all parallel with my time at Adelsheim and then, and then, um, going towards Shehalem as well. So, and I guess the, it's the, the thank you for, to David Adelsheim for being tolerant of little me doing this little project on the side and, uh, just continuing to, to learn about the industry through, through my own path. Um, I'm sure it, I'm sure in hindsight, it probably rubbed him the wrong way. But he was like, ah, it's just some kid in the tasting room. It's fine. So, yeah,
1: how did you how did you sell the wine?
2: Uh, so at that point in time, you know, you're you're two years into it and you're like, OK, if I want to do this again, I got to make some money. So I was selling, uh, you know, selling some futures at that point in time. I was selling, uh, you know, wine to just like family and friends. Uh, and then I was, you know, I was working in the tasting room and so I had like Tuesday, Wednesday as my weekend. So I would go to Portland and I would go sell wine. And you know, at that point in time, it was it was getting to be a crowded market, but it was it wasn't insanely impossible. You know, you could you could just knock on doors and show up and sell some wine and, and do the thing. So yeah, so that I started that way and then once I, you know, once my actual career world got a little bit busier and I started to, to do more things um, and, you know, fill my time with a job as opposed to, you know, a side project, um, I realized like, okay, this is a little bit harder mm-hmm. and I don't have as much time. And so then I so I started working on getting distributors. I had a couple distributors in um, like D.C. and Massachusetts and Washington uh, over and ultimately I built those over time. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of how I realized that I needed to start start chewing through the, the volume. Um, yeah, so I, I was doing that uh, and then also working harvests at Adlesheim and then at Chehalem and then I went to uh, Argyle Winery in 2013 and was hired by Andrew Davis there and I maintained that I told him I had my own project, he maintains that I didn't, uh, it's okay, everything is fine, everybody was okay with it. Um, at that point in time and yeah I kind of just kept doing the thing so um, yeah so in 2014 I switched wineries where I was making my wine and moved it to a small winery called Medici winery which is up in the Shahila mountains and um, a lot closer to Argyle where I was working at that point in time so it's a little bit more convenient I could just kind of bounce back and forth during harvest and it it became a little bit more tolerable to to make it all happen but yeah it was it was a lot.
1: So already you haven't even been in the wine industry that long you've already worked a lot of places at that time you've been at Shehalem, and you've been at Argyle and you and Adelsheim been in New Zealand I'm, I'm curious at that point before before getting here before mm-hmm. getting to Willa give me an idea of the sort of the, the comparison contrast What what were you learning from the places what were the kind of the the similarities between all of them, and, totally. and what were the the kind of like standalone, stand out things you were learning from each place? Yeah, so I think I was talking about so the thing that drew me to Adelsheim in the first place was the history
2: and the you know the depth of knowledge that I was able to, to gain from there working for Eric and working with Dave Page and Gina Hennen and then David Adelsheim as well, and then um, <clears throat> that was you know when I when I started thinking about okay where do I want to work next. And I was talking with Wynne, I was like, okay, there's again, there's history. Harry had been doing this for a long time and is a very influential person in the industry. And that was honestly what what drew me to there. I was like, okay, great history in Oregon, another lens to look at it through. Mm -hmm. And through that I ended up at at Argyle and it was again the same thing. I was like, okay, great. Great history, you know, founded in the eighties. Rollin is a wealth of knowledge. I can go work for him and I can just like sponge up as much of this stuff as possible. Um, so that was really what drove me for all the places I worked was was long histories influential wineries and influential people um, because I was realizing you know that's like that's the best way to to learn as much as possible is you know you can you can do it your own way and figure it out which I was doing but I was also just trying to like I was asking as many questions as I possibly could so I mean I don't know like I was trying to find every single end on the candle as possible and burn it as quickly as I could and just absorb all of that all of that knowledge. So, yeah, I was I was definitely on a on a crash course at all times of <laughs> of all things Oregon wine.
1: So you already have your own brand at this point also, which is what a lot of people are already working toward is they're, right. they're working toward that brand. So, what was your long-term goal at this point? What were you kind of looking for as you were working through this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, at that point in time, I was I was really just trying to like do as many things as possible and kind of find find the right thing. Um, by so I joined Argyle in 2013, and we built the the Newburg Winery there in 2014. And um, so I was working out of there, and you know co- I live in Newberg, so it's close to home, and I've got my project up at Medici and working with kind of a collective of other small producers up there, so I had all of these different, you know, mm-hmm. relationships and things going on, and, and it's just kind of mulling on what I wanted to do and how to, how to figure it out, and my, so my son was born in 2014, so that kind of adds to the, the fun of the whole <laughs> life factor, um, and yeah, it's just like more and more and more and do as many things as we possibly could. Uh, and I didn't really know, like, what the, what the long-term plan was at that point in time. Um, the you know at Argyle the team there the kind of the core team was myself, uh, Xenia House. So she and John House have their own project as well that they had just started you know a couple of years prior to, and then Nate Klosterman was was heading the thing. So it's kind of three young folks that are running Argyle, and two two out of the three of us have our own projects. So we're all you know super busy and mm-hmm. just trying to like navigate our through way through life. And I maintain that. Uh, a lot of both mine and Senia's uh, longevity at, at Argyle was, we, we kind of had this like, it was like a cold war of we both had our projects. So if they got rid of one of us, they had to get rid of both of us. <laughs> so we were able to to keep running our own thing. Uh, I don't know how they feel about that, but nevertheless. <laughs> um, but no, it was great. I mean, she she's a wealth of knowledge as well. Nate has so much history at Argyle. And, and it ended up being this great space to just sort of think and create and figure out kind of what we all wanted to do in our lives and with our own projects, um, and yeah, we got to do it while we all also had salaries, so that was nice too, so yeah, and like, um, you know, I had I had, had my, my first kid at that point in time too, so it was, it was nice to have like that core of, of stability mm-hmm. uh, while we get to explore, you know, what, what, may, be, what may be next. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned the wealth of knowledge you'd worked for. You worked for a lot of places with a lot of history, a lot of people with a lot of history, mm-hmm. uh, as you're sort of developing your own, your own style. So tell me at that point, at what point did you start to feel like you had a, a winemaking philosophy or a winemaking style that was something you wanted to create and, and how did it kind of evolve during the, that time?
2: Yeah, I think um, that was one of the things that Nate was great about doing was letting, letting us explore. Um, he I think he was also going through that as well, like trying to trying to define Argyle for himself. Um he had just he had really just taken it over in twenty thirteen, or I guess twenty fourteen was his first vintage doing it. So he was driving the ruts a little bit but also thinking outside of the box and and the three of us kinda got to do that together. Um and so that was uh that kind of became my crash course in defining style for myself. Um and Running my own brand, thinking about the way the things were happening at Argyle, but being able to ex- experiment and explore, mm. and um, and having you know two people there to bounce a lot of those ideas off of. So it was a lot of just kind of thinking, mulling, drinking a lot of wines, tasting a lot of wines. Um, and talking about the wines mm-hmm. and talking about what things matter to us in those wines mm-hmm. So then you have this opportunity to you know to do it on your own project in my situation and and I really started thinking about like what What's important in wine? What are the things that that I care about with it? And it's it, a lot of it's the connectivity to land, right? I mean, that's the thing that we all talk about and the thing that's that that draws us in year over year um, And so I started just thinking about how do I like how do I get out of the way a little bit more? So not worrying about like making wine and kind of just shepherding it along mm-hmm. um, and you know, stop inoculating, stop making ads to wines, add a little bit of SO2 here, because I think that's the way we all work, but stop filtering wines, all all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um and having success with that in in that project, but also knowing like Like yes it's your own brand but also it's like this big and it's like it's going to be okay if something goes wrong like you'll still be able to you'll still be able to figure out a way to sell it Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah exploring those wines and then coming back to them over years and being like man these are really cool and interesting wines and i'm really proud of them Mm -hmm. um and you know and you know probably by 2014 that was the point where i was like okay i think i think i kind of know what i'm doing I think I can figure this out, and I, and I can make you know smart decisions that mm-hmm. influence these wines in a way that I want them to be, um, and then being able to go back to it and see the results and say, yeah, okay, I, I you know, it worked. Um, what I thought was a good idea turned to be it turned out to be a good idea, and what I thought I was trying to do, I was able to to, to do. Mm-hmm. So.
1: When you were making wine at that point, especially for your own brand, did you have a, was it I'm going to make wine I like and hope I can sell it, or is it I'm going to make wine that I can sell and hope I like it? Yeah, it was definitely
2: making wines that, that I like to drink. Um, and I think we're all influenced by the places that we work, you know, you, you of course, are that way. And so when I'd look at the sort of the evolution of wine making style, it was kind of grabbing little bits of, mm-hmm. of knowledge from each of these places. and. You know, the, like when I was working at Adelsheim with Dave Page, it was a pretty early pick style um, and that was definitely how I started. I was like, oh, totally, like this is this is the way. Um, and and as I kind of evolved out of that, I was like, oh, maybe, you know, then I started working with Wynn and it was a different approach and, uh, and then when I got to Argyle it was, you know, the rules are pretty much out the door, Let, let's figure out the right way to, to do this. Um, and so it was pretty concurrent with me really just diving into thinking about the way that, that I want to do things. Mm-hmm. And again, the same way that, you know, that Nate was, I think, trying to kind of figure, figure out the right way to interpret winemaking for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and Senio was, you know, a little bit more focused on aromatic whites, but Pinot Noir was the thing that, and sparkling were the things that we were getting paid to do. So we were going to figure out the best way to, to do those things.
1: So what came next to you after Argyle then?
2: Uh, yeah, so I was at Argyle for uh, almost five years, and I was the enologist there, so running the lab and um, you know kind of running the teams as well. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to get um, you know a little antsy at that point in time. Say, okay, what's next? Uh, I was almost seven years into my project. I had you know like I had a few clients that I was making wine for as well, and. Um, I was and also my wife was pregnant with our second kid and it was like all right got a lot on the plate um, and so it kind of got to the point where I was like something's something's got to give like we got to start looking at making a change here at some point and it was you know it was clear that you know nate is, nate is still at argyle um sandy so ended up being there for a couple of years after after i was and it was pretty clear that that i wasn't going to be able to, to continue to grow mm-hmm. um, and yeah so i kind of started to look look outward uh, from there. And I had heard, you know, I knew Jackson family was in the area. I would kind of heard whispers that they were building a winery down in McMinnville and um, Sam Paleman, the winemaker down there, is an old friend of mine. And uh, and then Eugenia Keegan, who uh, was really spearheading all things Jackson family at the time. I had known her for a long time already from my time at at Adelsheim. so then I was kind of looking around the Jackson family group and I'm like, oh, I know a few people there. And, um, you know, I like them all. So what the heck? So I actually, I saw Sam in a bar during harvest in 2016. And I just kind of said, hey, you know, word on the street is you guys might be hiring at some point in time. Like, when you get to that point, keep me in mind. And you kind of see her be like, oh, okay, sounds good. And you know, I didn't realize this, but the next day or, you know, a couple of days after that. She walked back in and uh, talked to Eugenia and was like, "Hey, I think I want to know who I'm going to hire. I want to bring Alex." And Eugenia was like, "Great, wonderful. Like this'll this'll work. Um, you know him. I know him. Like, yes, we all, it'll 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 be just fine." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was about, gosh, that was like nine months before I actually got hired. So it took a long time. We kind of like knew that we were we working toward that. So that was that was good. Um, I also kind of knew that when I was joining Jackson family that I would probably have to stop my project and I was just like, I was okay with that and I was making about a thousand cases of wine at that point in time. Um, I had a bunch of clients, like we were finishing a home remodel, you know, we were getting having our second kid, it was just a lot and I was like, all right, I think it's, I think it's okay. I think it's okay to let this go and let it just be. Let it be a moment of time in mm-hmm. uh, a moment of my career that was foundational and and super important and uh, to you know to that accelerator and that that crash course of all things oregon winemaking um, but i was kind of i was kind of okay i came to you know came to peace with with being done with it and i figured it was probably the right thing to do for you know for life balance for just making it all all work and and being able to, to really make a proper career out of it. Um, and I, you know, Actually, I thought back about, about John Paul a lot of those times and thinking about, you know, where he is in his career and he'd been doing it for a long time. Uh, but it was still, you know, still kind of a small, small independent brand. Uh, and I know he wanted it to be that way, but I was looking at that and I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know if I want to be that. I don't necessarily know if I want to do that. I, think I I think i'm I think I'm more social than that honestly um, I want to be working with people I want to be working with teams and I want to be on bigger teams and mm-hmm. when I started looking at you know what was going on in Jackson family, I was like okay this is yeah I think this is probably the right way to go it's there's you know there's that that stability mm-hmm. um, you know I'm working with people I already know it'll be it'll be really easy to integrate and uh, yeah, I'm happy I made the jump mm-hmm. so yeah, so I came over in 2017 and at that point I actually had um, you know a fair bit of experience building wineries fortunately, uh, I had done it with Argyle uh, in 2014, I had also consulted on another project for one of my clients that I was uh, connected with through my brand and then, uh, yeah, so then we did it again with McMinnville and Sam had really laid a lot of the, the foundation up at that point in time but I kind of came in to... Helped finish that. Worked with the Jackson family engineering team. Equipped the winery, and then and then ran it in 2017. Um, but you know, when when I came in, I mean, Sam and I were were you know, we were friends already, right? And it was pretty easy to be open and transparent from the start. And we said, okay, like this is this is kind of a couple year job. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But the thing that's exciting and interesting about Jackson family is opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot going on. You know, Willikensy had gotten acquired and. Uh, fall of 2016, Penarash had just been acquired, you know, relatively recently before that. And, and we're like, oh my God, there's so many things happening or they're building this winery there's new brands, there's new projects, there's all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so it's like super interesting and exciting to, to come over and, and just kind of see what was, you know, what was the right thing to, to do after, after getting that winery set up. So Sam and I had kind of Agreed on like a two-year, two-year thing, and at that point it was like, all right, let's you know, let's figure out what's next. Um, long story short, it was about eight months uh, before uh, before I jumped over to to Kenzie. But it was clear from the beginning, like that was that was the right fit. Um, you know, I remember the, like the first day I saw Eric here. Uh, it was like, oh, hi, nice <laughs> to see you again. Um, you know, we, we worked together for two vintages at time. We knew each other quite well, mm-hmm. kind of gone our separate ways. And, and yeah, just, it just made sense. It was really, really seamless. And, um, yeah, it, uh, we were working together in 2017 on some of the initial, uh, the initial wines for sort of new Willikenzi, if you will. And, um, yeah, it just, it was a, it was clear that it was a, a good, Functional work relationship, and yeah, fast forward four more years, and here we are.
1: So we were obviously the archive were, was around in 2016, 2017 mm-hmm. as Jackson family was coming, and there was a lot of mixed mixed emotions about Jackson family's entry yeah. into the valley. I'm curious about your perspective on that, and, yeah. and uh, what you what you were heard and and what you were kind of feeling at that time as as they were coming and you were coming to work for them.
2: Yeah, so. Sania is, you know, she's a fiercely independent spirit. And um you know I and mean, she and I talked a lot about getting ready to, to leave and go on to the next thing. And I remember when I told her I was like, Okay, I'm, I'm gonna go to Jackson Film she's like, Ah, selling your soul <laughs> to the California devil, okay, I see. And that was you know, that was kind of the like the joke that a lot of us had right at the beginning. It was like Big Bad California coming in, you know. What's you know what's going to happen? There's all this stuff going on. There's like snatching up brands, consolidation, blah blah blah, and then you start looking around the room. And you're like, everybody here's from Oregon. Like, I'd already been here for ten years. Eric had been here for fifteen. Sam had been here for, you know, twelve something like that. Eugenia had spent so much of her career here. Like, you look around the room, and it's not, it's not big bad California coming up here. It's it's, resources coming up to let Oregon kind of do its thing. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool and but it took like honestly it took a couple of years to get that message through. I remember going to Salud the first year and it was like you walk in the door and you're like okay everybody like play nice like we need to go you know go see your friends and go tell everybody that like it's okay like the water's still warm on this side too. Um, yeah and it was and it was a couple of years of that of, of and I think everybody was kind of feeling out Jackson family insanely. What are they doing? Mm-hmm. You know, are they going to be, you know, mm-hmm. removed from all these things? But, you know, the Jackson family has continued to be involved with Live, with Salute, with OPC, IPNC, all the, all the above. Mm-hmm. And I think they've been great stewards of the industry and great, um, you know, they've they've done a great job of integrating with the local community. Um, I think that's one of the things that's great about Oregon is the that sort of like fierce independence and that spirit of that, that runs all the way through the industry. And, uh, I think there's a healthy respect for that. I don't think Jackson family expected that level of, of fierce independence, but, uh, I mean, that's kind of what happens when you have people that grow up in this industry. Like we, this is what we know. We know community here. Mm-hmm. We know that that's probably the most important pillar of what happens in the Oregon wine industry. And it's kind of going to stay that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's one of the things that I continue to think is really really cool about wine and about Oregon in particular is how tight the community is and it doesn't really matter where the outside influence is and where it's coming from that community will will still you know that's that's the thing that drives it all and honestly there's there's this like open arms that comes with all of that i mean you see Jackson family, obviously, but St. Michel, Jadot, you know, more recently, Rio and Bollinger, and you start looking around, you're like, well, it's still the Ponzi's, it's mm-hmm. still Mikey Etzel, it's, you know, it's still the same people. They just they just have a little bit more resource now, so.
1: So you talk you talk about the new Willikinsey, uh, and you're you're taking over for a, an established brand that has yeah. a loyal following and uh, you know and a high, high, strong reputation. Um, tell me about how that worked for you, Eric. The first year, first couple of years, as you were uh, kind of developing that. Like, how do you put your own stamp on it while keeping it true to what it is?
2: Yeah, totally. I think um, I, honestly, it's taken time. It's taken time for for us to figure out what the right way to message that is, the right way to interpret that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's been a really, really cool challenge. Um, you know, you don't you don't get this opportunity that often to sort of reinterpret a brand and reinterpret a place. Um, but that was kind of, you know, it's kind of the ask, it's the expectation. Clearly, the, you know, clearly the Jackson family saw something in this place. You know, there was this great history, it's a great vineyard, it's a great piece of land. Um, so you, you start with that, right? Mm-hmm. And you start with this amazing property and you say, okay, there's a good portfolio of wines, there's a reason that all these wines exist. Let's you know, let's do the best we can with them. Um, so you spend a lot of time in the vineyard, a lot of time sort of thinking and looking at the vineyard and, and, and validating all the things that have happened over the past 25 years. Um, and then you're like, well, yeah, it's, it all makes sense. So let's, let's kind of, let's start thinking about it in our own way. Um, you know, we don't need to move the needle that far mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the, the framework. We don't need to change the framework all that much, but really, um, you know just just winemaking wine making trying to get rid of the logistical uh you know nightmares that always exist in the winery you know just modernizing things bringing it up to speed um you know new packaging um we you know we did a, re- a renovation on the winery so this was a yet another build project that i that i had um i think that was my fourth one at that point you get a reputation for yeah like that. yeah i yeah i know it's cool <laughs> i mean that's that's honestly that's one of those things too that i i never expected to have you know four winery builds under my belt at this point in time I mean, most people do like one or two maybe and i was like god oh, okay i'm getting better at this so that's good <laughs> uh and you learn you learn things from each one right like you learn a lot of it is what not to do uh and this last one was the you know the build in 2019 was the first time where we did something and i was like okay i know i know what the right things to do are not what the wrong things are that you don't want to do so um but yeah you know the again it's it's the expectation uh, of really revitalizing it is 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 high mm-hmm. um, but i think that's you know that's what i think drives both of us i'm i'm a pretty competitive person eric is a competitive person and i think that's why we mesh well and you know we can keep pushing one another and creating and exploring and, and thinking outside the box and saying you know what's next how do we keep how do we keep moving it forward mm-hmm. um you know, the a winemaking style it, it takes a couple of years to also see the you know see the fruits of that right like mm-hmm. in 2017 we were just sort of you know i was i was running running Benville with sam eric was over here so we were kind of sort of working together but not really not like super closely and then in 2018 that was when we really started to dive in together and mm-hmm. start thinking about it together um, and yeah that was that was when we started thinking about style thinking about interpretation thinking about the place and thinking about what the like the right long-term winemaking style was what the right long-term portfolio was and it was just a lot of tasting and a lot of talking and a lot of just kind of thinking out loud um, and it was a couple of years of that before we i think we really felt like we got it uh, and the 2019 was the first year that we really felt like we were like okay we're starting to understand what this place wants to do uh, but that's three years you know It takes time and and it takes a lot of patience to to go through you know go through that whole exercise and not really be able to see anything on the you know see anything positive coming out of it like and now it's now it's like just it's just starting to happen Mm -hmm. you know we're, we're we'll be out in the market and people are finally pouring the wines that we've been working on and that we're proud of and that we're excited about but it's been you know now we're four years out before we're really through to, to wines that we feel like we can stand behind and say like, yeah, this is, this is where we want to be going.
1: I'm curious about, you mentioned obviously the vineyard here as as one of the driving, driving factors, uh, tell me about getting to know a vineyard like that, coming into a, coming into a place like this that has an established vineyard, how do you, how do you get to know it and how long does it take to feel like you're comfortable getting the most you can out of it?
2: Yeah, I think, um, this is, a, this is a funny vineyard. It's The architecture of it is all over the place. There's lots of teeny little blocks. There's big blocks and there's tiny blocks. And then uh, there's variations. And then you always look at the map and you're like, but is that true? Is that really what's in that block? You know, you taste the wines and you're like, this doesn't taste like the 777 from the three other blocks around it, so what is it actually? Um, but you don't, I mean, it's, it's a year before you, after you make those wines before you can actually taste it and say, okay, there's something going on here. Um, you, start to, you start to walk around a vineyard though and you start looking at it and you see the portions of vineyards you've worked with in the past that are really strong and you can kind of start, you can kind of start drawing parallels. Um, and you can say, okay, this reminds me of XYZ from, from that vineyard and I think it's gonna be pretty good. And then you taste it and you're like, okay, cool there's something there's something you know, validating about that, too. Like as a as a winemaker and somebody that walks vineyards, you look at it and you're like, I think I think I know what I'm doing. I think I can kind of interpret uh, what this place is going to do from a winemaking standpoint. And and then once it actually happens and you see it come through, you're like, OK, cool, good, I understand that. I know what I can do with with that mm-hmm. portion of a property. Um, this property in particular is really, really variable. I mean, there's two fault lines on the property. There's, yeah, yeah, there's, you know, three different geologic masses. There's all these different, you know, vertical reliefs, different aspects, different elevations. It's, it's I mean, but honestly, that's the thing that's really cool about the property is that they're all of these different little pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that it takes a lot of time to understand and the time to interpret it Mm -hmm. Um, and honestly like a lot of my experience leading up to this point have been with volcanic sites and this is a purely sedimentary site uh, with a lot of variation so yeah um, from a winemaking standpoint you're trying to you're trying to shape these wines that are a little bit more rustic a little darker a little firmer than what you're used to working with Mm -hmm. and you know when you start getting into the nitty-gritty details of Barrel profiles and uh, oak regimes, you know, extraction, all that kind of stuff. You 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 have to start sort of molding that to, to what the vineyard wants to be, mm-hmm. uh, and that and that takes time. Um, but that's that's to me probably the biggest takeaway from working with this place is is you can't you can't use like the same rules that you used on a volcanic site, for example, mm-hmm. and apply them to that and just assume it's going to work. Um, You've got you to kind of think about it differently and take time to understand it. And it's a quick reminder that you're never going to get it in year one. Um, it's just not going to happen. And I think that's particularly the thing that I've really implanted uh, for me is that rolling forward, if, you, you know, if I'm working with new vineyards or new places, don't, like, don't expect to get it year one you can get pretty close you can you can use your past experience and you can um, you know use the things that worked and didn't work to have a pretty good idea mm-hmm. what's going to happen but but yeah don't don't expect to land it exactly on your one
1: so of course in this instance uh, with you and Eric kind of feeling your way through this uh, your' you're not necessarily entirely in charge of, of what comes out, right? You're, you're working with a company that that has bought this property and has designs on what you're going to do with it. So I'm curious about how that has worked out for you in terms of sort of oversight instruction. Uh, how much freedom have you had and, yeah. and, and it, where is the kind of the, uh, the sort of the halfway meeting point where you have for where, where you're where you're kind of in charge and in command what you do and, and where you're kind of dealing with orders from from California?
2: Yeah. Um, honestly, there aren't a lot of orders from California, which is what is really, really cool about it. Um, I think there's a lot of respect, again, going back to that like independent spirit and that fierce, fiercely independent thing that is Oregon. There's a lot of respect for that, and there's a lot of respect for what has been happening in Oregon over the years, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of trust that goes into that. Um, yeah, I think, honestly, from the, the family really just wants great wines to come out of it, and they're not gonna take the California rules and apply it onto what's happening in Oregon. Um, that has taken, it's taken a little bit of time to explain that. Uh, I don't think that was what they anticipated from day one, um, but there's an, ad- an adaptability that goes along with that and there's an understanding and there's a trust in people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that a lot of the philosophy is put the right people in place and just let them do their thing. Give them the tools, give the right people the right tools and just let them go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly how we, we approach things. Uh, we haven't been told otherwise. And <laughs> until we are told otherwise, we're going to kind of keep doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a measure of su- there's a measure of success that's, that's happening there across, you know, across the portfolio, not just with Wilkenzie, but you know, and Grand Moraine and, and the wines coming out of, out of McMinnville. Um, yeah, it's working. Uh, we're all really happy with that. And we kind of get to live on our little Oregon Island. Um, They've been, again, they've been growing pains, but that's that's normal. Um, and honestly, I think that's part of the reason that the Oregon brands and the Oregon wineries within the Jackson family portfolio have con- continued to be so connected and so integrated with the rest of the industry around here is that there isn't this, um, you know, this command coming from mm-hmm. Command Central, if you will. Uh, yeah, it just doesn't happen. So. Um, I don't know. It's great. It's a really, it's a really great balance. Like it's all of the, all of the creativity and all of the range that you want to have, with oversight for sure. But um, really, it's it's access to resources mm-hmm. and and the opportunity to to just kind of go and do your thing.
1: So obviously, uh, in the middle of your kind of growing into the site here, you had 2020 uh, and yeah. all, all of the challenges of that. So I'm curious. For kind of the both parts of 2020, both both the pandemic beginning in the early part and then, of course, Harvest and all the issues with Harvest. Tell me sort of what that did to your kind of plan and your and your and your work and also kind of the the reactions and responses from you and the team here kind of coming out the other side of it.
2: Yeah, 2020 was a year, man. Um, So Sam Paleman had her first child in 2020. Uh, in August of 2020 and uh, you know I had had enough experience working in McMinnville and um, you know Sam and I still have a great relationship and so I was actually asked to run that winery in 2020 um, because she was on maternity leave and then that was pre-pandemic and then the pandemic hits and you're like okay well it's going to add a different layer, um, but I was, you know, still con- continuing to be in touch with what was going on here at Willikenzie. So kind of like overseeing the team there, but continuing to be in touch with with Willikenzie and then the pandemic hit and, you know, we didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, you know, we're, we created a lot of sort of separation of teams, but the expectation for me was to continue to be doing a little bit of both. So. Yeah, it was really hard to navigate that. And then, of course, smoke on top of it. And you're like,
1: Jesus,
2: (laughs) stack it on. Um, So, yeah, it was twenty twenty was a hard one. It was a really hard one. Um, Honestly, I think that like the for me, the shift happened pretty quickly in, you know, when the smoke came, we ended up picking everything for Jackson family and and the whole vintage became one giant experiment. of figuring out like how do we how can we work with these things? Mm-hmm. Um, and long story short, we ended up not bottling a lot of those wines, I think, which was pretty common around the valley. But yeah, you take the opportunity when it comes, right? So I don't know. I mean, I ran literally every experiment I possibly could. Um, I remember like the, my whiteboard in my office was just like all over the place, and I remember sending all these emails, being like, "What do you think about this? What do you think about that?" and I sent one with this sort of long, rambling experimental plan to Eugenia, and she was like, of all my years in winemaking, I don't think I have seen anything like this. <laughs> uh, and I was like, "That's is what happens when you're just like stuck, and you're thinking the whole time. And you're like, what the hell do I do with these wines? Um, yeah, so it was, a great, I mean, it was a great opportunity to just experiment and to learn from a winemaking standpoint and learn like honestly what doesn't work and that's mm-hmm. pretty much everything, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's an important exercise unto itself is learning what does and doesn't work. Um, so at that point, you know, once it became pretty clear from a winemaking standpoint that it just like it was like, man, is not going to happen the i think the focus for me really shifted and it was it was okay let's you know let's try to give the teams that are here you know with internationals you have a lot of people that are coming to work harvest let's do everything we can to give them a good sort of fulfilling experience but then also like use the opportunity to try to grow the people that are on these teams as much as possible and mm-hmm. and just take the time to have dialogue about you know career growth you know where do you want to go like you, know, you try to get something out of it, right? Like you're spending hours and hours and hours a day with all these people. So like, I well, can't make wine. Let's, let's try to do some mentoring out of the whole thing. So that was honestly where, where it shifted. Um, and then Sam came back from maternity leave and I was just like, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I, I tried. I gave it like everything that we had. And you know, it's, yeah, mm-hmm. here we are, mm-hmm. sorry. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's, uh, you know, as the pandemic has rolled on, I think um, 2020 was hard in particular because, you know, there were like vaccines weren't out yet. By the time we got to 21, you know, people were starting to get vaccinated and we're starting to see a little bit more openness um, and a little bit more freedom in terms of The ability to just like, like honestly just sit down and have a beer with everybody at the end of the day. You know, we couldn't do that in 2020. Everybody's, maybe they're outside and, you know, pretty distanced and, but it's just awkward and it's hard. And, you know, there's this literal and figurative smoke looming over everything. And it's just like, oh man, this is so challenging. Mm -hmm. So when we got to 21, you know, it's still a pandemic harvest, but uh, we keep talking about how it was like the year that we all earned after having worked through 2020 like, oh man, the wines are really yummy. We're stoked about them. Uh, you know, we had a great harvest team and that again became the big priority for me was, let's get a really fun, really great team in so that we can enjoy, like enjoy harvest mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of take back everything that 2020 <laughs> stole from us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, that's, uh, pandemic. pandemic winemaking has been weird the you know we're, we're essential workers so we're here all the time um but like right now there's three of us in the winery so it was pretty easy to stay so socially distanced and you know it's not hard from a from a standpoint to mm-hmm. to keep maintaining your normal life um in the winery but yeah the rest of the rest of world the rest of the world kind of just slowed down and i think it's for the better personally i mean i think the like Pandemic pace of life was definitely slow, and it makes everybody reevaluate things. Um, and I think it's a super important uh, exercise to go through to just take the time and say what's what's really important to you. You know, where are you spending your time? How are you balancing all that? Um, and life was like so busy pre-pandemic. And I mean, like story to tell is like so. Eric and I sat down in January of 2020 and looked at our calendars and planning on you know planned out the whole year of. Tasting days and travel days and you know life days and family trips and spring break and everything. And we were like, Jesus Christ, we have every we had every single day planned out, including weekends through like July. And we we're like, Whoa, okay, like it's gonna be a busy year. And then the pandemic hits, and, and you're kind of like, Okay, it's all like none of it's happening now. So what are we what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and it hasn't really gotten back to that level of busyness, but I think it's found a nice sort of balance um yeah and i hope like i hope it stays at this pace personally uh it's a it's a good it's a good work pace it's a good sort of balanced life approach Mm -hmm. and um, yeah i think pandemic really made everybody reevaluate that in a in a positive way
1: so you mentioned that the wines, the 21 wines you're enjoying already, tell me about the, the wines that are being served now, the wines that you're selling now, you mentioned these are kind of the first wines you felt like standing, you stood, stood behind, these are the wines you yeah. had kind of, you had a, a plan in place and you, so tell me about them, how, how you're feeling about the wines that are out there now and how they're being received and, and what are the, the kind of defining characteristics for you? Yeah, so the
2: twenty nineteens I think are just starting to roll out. Uh, and that was the first year after we had done the winery remodel. There's our first harvest in the in the new winery. And um, you know when we did the when we did the remodel, we moved away from a, a small number of large tanks to a large number of small tanks. So we could keep things sort of separated and isolated and, and continue to to pick apart the vineyard and understand things. Um, But also there were a lot of those infrastructural uh, handcuffs that came off. And so we were able to, you know, approach fermentation and approach harvest the way that we, you know, with a level of intentionality that we honestly couldn't prior to that. And so now that the 2019s are coming out, we feel like they're, you know, pretty reflective of really what we want to be doing from a from a winemaking standpoint. Um, There's good timing, right? Like, you know, three years in, you're starting to understand the vineyard, you're starting to understand the approach to extraction, then um, you're starting to understand, you know, oak regimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so, you know, the, the the vineyard wants to produce pretty savory, pretty rustic wines. Uh, so what we've done is backed off on extraction a little bit and try to get away from the rusticity and let the, you know, let the character of the the vineyard show through without just being like, Fully front-loaded tannin all the time, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, they're more sort of like plush, round wines that are that are not necessarily like approachable and built to be approachable only, but they're approachable enough. They're really built for for aging, but you can you know you can drink them now and have them be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the response has been has been great because. I think part of our enthusiasm helps on that, because we're like, oh, yeah, we were stoked about these wines. Um, but you taste them, and there's, there's a level of concentration, there's a level of, of intensity, and there's a shape to them that's intentional for, for what we want to do. And um, you know, we have you know, six different sort of mini vineyards on this property, and we've gotten the opportunity to really understand all of them mm-hmm. and to, to hone them into their own respective shapes. So they all sort of move in their own way. Um, and now that we've, you know, by 19, we really had our head wrapped around it, I think. Uh, and we were able to sort of reframe all of those, those shapes of those vineyards, uh, ultimately the way that they manifest themselves as, as wines and, and, and kind of just let them do their own thing.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, what's next for Wilkinsy? Uh,
2: I think it's continuing to explore, uh, continuing to pick apart the vineyard and, you know, like a lot of the sort of language that we've used is find the best wine on the property. Um, Stop thinking inside of the lines, if you will. Um, Blocks, you know, blocks are just kind of painted on top of what geology is. So, you know, use the, you know, use the nuances and the undulation of the vineyard to define what the right wines are, not necessarily what block definition is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's a a kind of a philosophic change that we've been working on. Uh, but Chardonnay is the Chardonnay is the deal, um, you know. Jackson Family is a Chardonnay company uh, that is definitely the origin. Um, but there there are amazing things happening uh, with Oregon Chardonnay, and you know this is yet another place that is a it's just a great grape growing property. And you know we have the opportunity to look at this place and look at these variations in this property through Pinot Noir. But we're really looking toward doing that same thing with Chardonnay. So, expanding the plantings of the property, a little bit of grafting over, uh, things like that, and trying to, you know, create a uh, sort of parallel lens of winemaking with Pinot Noir, but also, mm-hmm. also Chardonnay. I mean, those are, I think there's a very natural progression from that standpoint. Um, I mean, with all that being said, Oregon Chardonnay is tough right now. When you go out to the the wider world, I mean, we think these wines are killer, and you put them next to, you know, white Burgundy, and you're like, man, there's something going on in Oregon. And they're still distinctly Oregon. They're not just, they're not just like a different version or a new world version of white Burgundy. Um, I feel like this is the, this is one of the hard parts about Oregon Pinot Noir that was existing, you know, however many years ago. How do you, how do you sell this wine? How do you position this wine? And, And it was so commonly like, it's, you know, it's like Burgundy or, you know, the, Burgundian style or the Oregonian thing, Um, and that's—it's hard because Oregon is its own thing. The wines aren't Burgundy. You know, the climate isn't Burgundy. The place isn't Burgundy. The soils are different. You know, everything about it is different. It just—we just happen to be growing Pinot Noir. Um, It—it clearly works, and it's—you know—it's a good parallel to draw in some capacity, but Oregon is. Fiercely independent, uh, Oregon grows, you know, grows Pinot Noir in a very different way, mm-hmm. and the wines manifest themselves differently. And there is absolutely an Oregon thing, but it's hard to not go back to that with Chardonnay because we're trying to establish, you know, the reputation and. And then you kind of default back to like, it's kind of like white burgundy, but it's different. And you're like, no, 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 don't do that. Like it's, it's the obvious parallel from, from Pinot Noir, and that's why it works here. And that's why it, it grows really well. Um, you know, the, when I was working at Adelsheim, I, I got the, the very deep history. And obviously, David has been very influential in you know the future of Chardonnay in Oregon. Um, and so, you know, that story was like pounded into me immediately. And so now we're now we're at this moment where like hopefully all that work and all that sort of reestablishment of what the, you know, what Oregon Chardonnay can be will will start coming to fruition. You know, I think we're like 2 weeks out from the Oregon Chardonnay celebration and I remember being there and looking around the room, and you're like, man, there are so many people here that are making amazing wines that are compelling and interesting and unique and expressive of place and representative of what's going on in Oregon. And then you're like, man, everybody here is making like 500 cases of it. No wonder nobody knows that it's going on. Mm-hmm. I and mean, there's so few wines with scale that are representing Oregon out in the greater market. And it's it's tough. Mm-hmm. So. I think that's kind of the tipping point or kind of the that's kind of this moment where we are right now where the Pinot Noir category is is there people know Oregon they know Pinot Noir they know that there are great wines coming out of here and Pinot Gris was the white that led the way for for so long um, and that dialogue is starting to shift mm-hmm. and I know it's a priority for the you know for the collective of Oregon but it's hard because it's just there aren't that many wines out there mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I think that's what we're we're hoping to do was help to you know help to ship to to shape that future for Oregon Chardonnay and and uh, bring it to the same sort of level that Pinot Noir has been identified as in Oregon.
1: So you, that's a, a pretty good answer to the next question I was going to ask. So we'll talk if there's anything else. But we, we kind of talk about the the industry, what you, what you've seen in the industry. So mm-hmm. we'll start with that part of it, um, kind of. You talked about your first impressions of Oregon wine, and, and uh, what what has changed to now? What what is different about the industry? How has it changed in the years you've been a part of it? And what does it look like to you now in 2022?
2: Yeah, I think it's um, it's it's kind of same same, but but different. Like the that community and the importance of community and the um, you know the importance of sharing information. 2020 was a great example of that where everybody is talking to everybody about what is going on what are you seeing and and it doesn't really matter if you're at jackson family or jadeau or saint michelle or Henriot or bollinger like it's that exchange of information is gonna is gonna cross borders it's going to that's what makes this place great mm-hmm. uh, and that i think is the thing that will continue to make this place truly unique and this um, you know this industry and in this community in oregon unique compared to a lot of other places in, uh, in the winemaking world um, and I want that to stay the same personally because that's what makes us all better and that's what makes the, you know, the industry move forward. Um, I think we're going to continue to see consolidation in some capacity but I think we're also going to see a lot of really interesting small producers do their thing um, and that's a super important part of the, of the industry that kind of that dichotomy, I think that dichotomy is going to become stronger um, but I think that's okay because everybody has their, you know, their own story to tell with with winemaking, um, and when you can do it in that independent way as a small producer, like more power to you. Like I support everything about that uh, because, I mean, I I did it, I I know how it goes. It's hard, uh, and yeah, I I want to support everybody that wants to to approach the wine world that way. Um, but there's also large players that are producing a lot more wine, doing it at a very high level uh, and they play a very important role on establishing you know the Oregon industry out into the world so it's it's both and I think it can continue to be it can continue to be both and I
1: think it's important that it's both Well put I like that. What well, the future for you? Obviously, you, you've, you've already done a lot in a, in a fairly short time. Sure. What's, what's, what's up next for you, both uh, wine-wise and, and other, if, if, if anything else on the horizon?
2: Yeah. Um, I think this is like the first time in my career where I've been OK with just kind of like being put. Um, you know, we're, my, my wife and I are at a phase in life where our kids are five and eight, and they're like, you know, we went, we were traveling for the holidays, and it's the first time where I got to like read a book on a plane. <laughs> Uh, so things are like things are a little bit calmer and a little bit okay. Uh, so you know, stability and continuity is 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 good right now. Um, being okay with like with you know being in one place, I'm I'm settling into that. I'm accepting that that's probably the right way to to be going. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of planning on on staying put for a while. Um, there's there are plenty of challenges that are still available within. You know, within Jackson family, there are plenty of challenges to be found within within Kenzie and uh, you know, taking the time to to focus on that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think the, the pandemic has really given everybody this opportunity to reevaluate what the you know what the concept of work looks like, and rebalancing your priorities, and you know, having a you know having a schedule that helps prioritize time with family and time to just be and time to explore uh, not just your work world but you know your personal world and your in the rest of your life. Um I think it's we're all realizing that that's pretty important right now and being okay with with being still is is kind of where I'm at right now.
1: Zen winemaking. Yeah, sure. It's a new thing. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't heard hadn't heard much of that before 2020. That's uh, it's nice yeah. to
2: hear. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh,
1: so, if someone were to come to you and ask for your advice on on joining the wine industry or, or your words of wisdom, what would you tell them?
2: Whenever I talk to people that are um, like getting ready to start their own project or say, you know, I want to jump in, I want to do this kind of thing, my my first answer is don't, don't do it, because. If, like, if me telling them no is going to be the thing that will deter them from joining it, then it wasn't going to work anyway. You I mean The people that are going to thrive in this industry and the people that are going to thrive with those types of projects are the people that are so driven and so focused on doing that, that it doesn't matter how many times they hear no, they're still going to go. So my my answer is don't do it Uh, because, yeah, if and honestly, those are the people that I want in the industry and those are Mm -hmm. people that I want to work with Mm -hmm. because they're going to be just as passionate and just as driven as the rest of us Mm -hmm. and they're going to help make the industry better.
1: It's awesome. I love it. All the questions that I have for you today. Uh, Anything I didn't ask that I should have anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered. I think we're good. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much for your time and your uh, sharing all your stories and and, uh, wisdoms with us on this very brisk outdoor day here in uh, supposedly almost spring Oregon. Uh, Thank you so much for your time and we'll let you off the hook. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archives students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.